DJ. And I'm your host, Sam. And we're on episode 70 this time around. Jesus Christ. Hell yeah. Episode 70, FNC part 30. And today we are in the lovely New Jersey. So today we're going to be talking about the Eastbound Strangler. And this is taking place in 2006. So strap in and enjoy the ride. But before we get into this string of murders, we have one good old dose of the most to start us off. Apparently, physicists think they figured out how the Egyptians built the pyramids. <sighs> they come out with this like every couple of years. They lie and they bullshit and I right. know it. So apparently, this physicist by the name of Daniel Bond and his team figured out that they use water. And it has to be the correct amount of water to hmm. move the big sand cubes up and down and slide them around so they can like build the pyramids. That doesn't even make sense, because how are you lifting these big-ass blocks regardless? So the way they did it was by, like, a rope pulley system. They say that um, in order for the blocks to be correctly lifted and pulled the, right, the way they should be, there has to be, like, an optimal amount of water for the sand. So it can't be too wet or it'll be too slippery, and it can't be too dry or it just won't go anywhere. But that's So how did the Egyptians figure that out? That's what they think they figured out. <laughs> Mm, what do you guys think? Do yeah, you think what do you that's what think? it was? That just seems too easy as well as, I don't know, it just doesn't seem like, it's just too simple for the Egyptians to do that. And then for it to be that risky, every every single block has to be the perfect amount of water and all the pyramids and the statues and things that they have built. Ain't no way, ain't no way that they're just like putting in all that effort and all that work for something that is so tedious. Right, that's how I felt about it. That's how I was like, uh, it doesn't make sense to me, but. If that were the case, they would just stick with one pyramid and be like, all right, that's enough. That shit was hard. Like, exactly, that's what I would think, but apparently so that's what weird. they figured, that's what they think. I mean, I guess, but that's boring. <laughs> and also, you know, there's been some talk about this new thing that's been making its way around town, uh, monkeypox, and we have not <laughs> looked into it or done any research about it. Um, I'm just kind of trying to stay clear. I don't want to know about it just yet. I'm still not over schmovid. So, um, yeah, I just don't care for that right now. <laughs> I'm not trying to hear about another outbreak. I'm just not. I'm over it. Now we're going to get into some background information about the setting and just the overall area where these crimes took place. This one's very weird. Um, just a heads up, this case is interesting in its own special way and I'll kind of highlight that later on in the episode. But yeah, I thought like when I was doing the research on this, I just thought this information was very weird. Yeah, me personally, um, I've heard the Eastbound Strangler in passing, but I've never yeah. like, gotten into the details of what the whole situation was. So I'm right. excited. Yeah, I think I've heard about this killer as well, but right. like you said, not a lot of information. You've just heard the name in passing. Right, right, right. Where did this take place exactly? The crimes took place in Atlantic City and more specifically Egg Harbor Township. Um, so it's kind of like the outskirts of Atlantic City. I think Atlantic City is pretty big. I'm not too sure. I'm not familiar with the area. Atlantic City used to be a pretty popular location for summer fun on the boardwalk back in the day. Once gambling was legalized, things began to shift. Um, so I assume that, you know, there's just a lot of shady shit going on around there. And once, you know, 
law enforcement got involved and things became or became legalized, people just didn't see the fun in it anymore, you know? Um, so yeah, I'm thinking something like that. Just to give you guys an idea of the time span of when this took place, it has now been 15 years since the murders of these four young women who were involved in sex work. There's something else, a very weird detail about this case that we will get into in the end that really raised an eyebrow for me because this is something that we've talked about before, like a possibility with serial killers. But yeah, we'll get more into that in a little bit. The women's bodies were all discovered in a drainage ditch behind the Golden Key Motel on the outskirts of Atlantic City, close to the shore of New Jersey. So, not necessarily a small town, but kind of just a rundown area right outside of, like, the hustle and bustle of the city. Um, and Golden Key Motel, I don't know much about it, but it sounds like a shady place. It's a bunch of loan shark type stuff going on. Like, right. meet me at this time, this hour. Don't mm -hmm. bring anybody. Don't tell anybody where you're yeah. going. Yeah. Given the evidence and details of the case found during investigation, the police had a name for this unidentified killer. And that name was the Eastbound Strangler. And they came up with this name literally based off of their investigation. And like the location and where, where he was. Well, a detail of not even the location, like a detail about the case and the bodies. Oh. Yeah. So to continue with those details, when exactly did this take place? The exact dates and times of death for the victims are unknown, but their remains were discovered on November 20th, 2006. The four victims were found all at once and they were face down, lined up in a row, facing east. Yeah, what? like their heads were facing east. Like their heads were turned facing east, but also like the way their body was laying, it was like, was it north, south, east, west? So like their head was like north and their, like their body, you know, the head of their body, their feet were south, their head was north, but their heads were turning east. Oh, All of their heads. Like they were looking east? Yes. Or, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Each body was approximately 60 feet apart. All the women were clothed, with the exception of their shoes and socks. Wait, what? Yeah, they all had clothes on except for shoes and socks. That's weird. Very. All the victims had been strangled to death. And, uh, no, actually, reading into that now and knowing that these women were involved in sex work, it almost makes me think, and at a hotel or a motel, it almost makes me think that this was a John or a client who was taking the moment, like taking their chance to hurt and murder these women, either when the women were unclothing themselves, like probably not when they were like getting undressed, but if you were getting undressed, you would probably start with your feet, you know, your shoes and your socks, you take those off and then you take the rest off. So that would make sense why they were clothed, but without socks and shoes or after the act, when you're putting your clothes back on, they could have gotten dressed first because you'll start from the top and then do your shoes and socks last, but they never got to those points because that's when the killer attacked them. So it could have been before or after the act, if they even got to that point. I don't know, but that's what would make sense to me with all of them missing their shoes and their socks. It would seem like a very opportunistic thing to do, but... yeah. Think about it. Somebody's, you know, trying to unfumble yeah, their sock like or something. They're, yeah. They're focused on, so yeah. Exactly. 
So here's a quote from an investigator on the case. 15 years later, we have not made an arrest for these homicides, but we're always looking. We're always working and re-examining information about this case. We haven't stopped. We won't stop. And 15 years later, we are still in constant communication with our law enforcement partners. We leave no stone unturned. This is from Chief of County Investigators, Bruce DeShields. Yeah, like I love that, you know, they say that, but they say that like all the time. And, and I get it, like it's a lot of work. It's hard work. And like, especially with cases like this where there's no leads, like there's no suspects, there's just not a lot going on. It can be hard, but I understand that that willpower and that um that drive that thirst to like solve a case and to get justice for victims i mean especially when it comes down to a serial killer and there's so many victims and you know random targeted attacks um so yeah i feel like it, it's an ode to like the family it's, very, it's a very comforting like thing to say when, yeah. you're, when you're in a situation like this because you don't want to freak anyone out you want to like you know yeah. have them keep that same hope yeah that's true you don't want them to think you don't want the victim's family to think that you know it's been 15 years they don't care anymore because clearly they do you know um so yeah i agree that reassurance to the family like 15 years later this case is still on our radar and it's still a top priority for us now we're going to get into the victims, just a little bit about them. There's not a lot of information on these women. Um, they were involved in the street life, and I don't. I just don't think there's a lot of people out there like that were vouching for them with the lifestyle that they had, and they probably weren't close to their families for their families to give accurate descriptions of who these women were, um, or maybe they just didn't want to because it's personal. So, and not everybody's meant to know that. So either way, we're going to tell you guys just what we can about these women. The first victim is Barbara V. Brador, and she was a 42-year-old sex worker who needed the money to support her cocaine addiction, and she disappeared in October of 2006. Second victim was Molly Jean Diltz. She was 20 years old, and she did not have a record for prostitution, so she had a clean record. But detectives determined she was working the stroll and they believe that she was the first victim to die. Third victim, Kim Raffo, who was 35 years old, was a former waitress from Brooklyn and had left her husband and children for a life of drugs and prostitution in Atlantic City. She was last seen alive on the day before the macabre body discovery. She had been strangled to death with a rope or a cord. Yeah, that's unconfirmed if it was a rope or a cord. The last victim was Tracy Ann Roberts, who was 23 years old and was a former stripper who also sold sex to support her drug habits. She was last seen alive in November of 2006. All of the victims were discovered by two women who were out on a walk. Now, let me elaborate on this because the first victim like one of the victims was found by these two women and then once investigators got there then they discovered the rest yeah so it wasn't like they were all next to each other and then the women like looked down and saw four victims like no they came across one and then it just carried on from there yeah because then police were investigating the area and they found them all like at the same time i think it's pretty sad though like looking at all four of these 
these victims and I don't you know don't know their lives don't know like what's going on but just from this little bit alone seeing that at least two of them were trying to support a drug habit altogether is just yeah. is so sad yeah definitely and at least one of them confirmed had children right. um yeah very very sad and I don't know, it's just a, a scary place to be is on the streets and you feel alone and, you know, I don't know, it's just very dangerous. Yeah. Always has been and I feel like that's something that always will be. It's just like prison or jail. Yeah. Um, I think those are the only two things that you can equate to each other. It's like, you can't equate anything else to jail or anything else to living on the streets, like, except for those two things. Those are like bottom of the barrel, worst of the worst. You don't want either one. So, it's scary either way, whether you're on the streets or you're behind bars. Although in the beginning of the investigation, the cops had many leads and suspects on the table, all of those possibilities eventually just led to nothing. And, like we've said before, it just sucks when you come to that conclusion in a case. Um, where you just try and you try and you try. You have all these leads, all these possibilities, and they all just lead to nothing. So, that was the case with this. It just led to nothing, and it's just so frustrating. Because how? Yeah, it always gets me. Like, how does it lead to nothing? You mean to tell me there was, like, no evidence and nothing, nothing that, like, could have at least led to... No, there was, actually, but we'll get into it. At least lead you to, like, one person? Anything? Yeah. But with that being said, we're going to take some time to thank our sponsor, and we will see you soon. And now that we're back, guys, that was pretty much it for the Spound Strangler case. But... There's always more. There's always more. Handyman Terry Olson, who was 41 years old, was staying for free at the Golden Key Motel in exchange for building repairs during the time the homicides took place, which is strange as fuck, in my opinion. Definitely, especially considering he was a handyman. Um, working around the building and in the building and he probably had keys or access to various rooms or areas that were probably hidden to the public. Um, yeah, that's a little creepy, but he, then again, he was a handyman. He was probably just doing his job, minding his business. Right. But on the off chance that he wasn't. Yeah. An angry, bitter ex confessed that he was the killer and this has never been proven. I'd be pissed, though, hmm. if, like, the police came to me thinking I was involved in something and then one of my exes or an ex-friend was just like, yeah, she did it. Like, and that yeah. probably wasn't even the case. Like, I never confessed them. Right. They were just mad and decided to, like, come out and say some shit. Right. Ugh, I'd be pissed. Inside his motel room, investigators found cameras set up and photos of his girlfriend's teen daughter undressing. So, I think that's why she was bitter. Yeah. Not too sure, but that would make sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. But I don't think it's okay to just come out, and I don't know if she was lying, but if she was lying just to say that he was the killer because you're mad, I don't think that's okay. But definitely not okay that he had um, photos of yeah. her underage daughter undressing. Not yeah. okay. At all. At all. Unfortunately, DNA found at the discovery location did not match Terry. A recent documentary sheds light on a theory about the Eastbound Strangler. It's believed that there's a chance the Long Island serial killer could also be the Eastbound Strangler. 
And that's what I was saying in the beginning. This new documentary that came out, I forgot what it's called, um, but basically was shedding light on the theory that the Long Island serial killer could be the same killer as the Eastbound Strangler because it's the same area. Um, I believe the crimes took place around the same time Mm -hmm. and neither one of them have been caught. And, like, you know, the cases have never been solved. And some of the Long Island serial killers' victims were sex workers, and some of them were strangled. So, police, or, you know, at least the documentary, kind of compared and contrasted the serial killers' um, crimes and just their styles and ways of committing these crimes. And the fact that neither one of them has been caught is a little sus. Yeah. Okay. So, say the Long Island serial killer did get away with something or whatever, and then he was like, I wonder if I can do it again, again, but, like, maybe just try one style this time, you know? Because not all of the Long Island serial killer's victims were strangled, but all of these ones were. So, I wonder if he was like, maybe I could try, you know, something different this time. And have it all be one style and see if they try to think that it's a different serial killer when it's really just me. Like, you never know. People are sick and twisted and it's definitely a possibility. He probably, he or she or they probably did it to throw the police off as well. Like, oh, they won't be worried about my other killings if they think there's a new serial killer on the loose. whole time it's still just me. Because you've you seen things like that with shades of, like, the Zodiac Killer or yeah. like other killers, too. But see, the Zodiac Killer, though, he's so, like, proud that yeah. he would literally, like, tell you, like, yeah. oh, I did this, too, you yeah. know? But this is a little different where it seems like if they're connected, the Long Island serial killer did what he did or did what they did mm-hmm. and then came back later and decided to do this. Okay. But you know where... Police officers try to, like, create a suspect profile based off of the type of crime and right. the type of, like, like crime know. scene. Just, like, what it was like, like, the type, the cause of death. Like, all of that. And that's how they're able to relate different crimes and create a serial killer profile mm-hmm. based off of victims um, alone, for example. So, the Eastbound Strangler, all these women were strangled. What if the Long Island serial killer did that in order to, like, purposely make police believe that this was a specific person, like, a different killer than the Long Island serial killer? Because with those cases and those murders, only a couple of them involved strangling or strangulation and prostitution and sex workers. So, I don't know. Or maybe they're possibly literally just two different people. What do you think? Honestly, though, that makes a lot of sense. If that is the case or could be the case, I would say that makes the most sense. Try a different style to see if it throws them off. Right. um, At that point, if you got away with it once and you're just, quote unquote, having fun with it or, you know, like just, hey, I can get away with this. Let me see what else I can do. I mean, it's not too far fetched to think. To continue on and to sprinkle in our ending details for this case. The drainage ditch that the women were found in contained fresh water runoff and measured to be 5 feet deep and 10 feet across. So, however deep the water was, it was literally like 5 feet deep. And then the width of it. So, the length, I'm sure, was long. It probably, you know, 
the drainage ditch probably went like for a mile or so who knows but the width of that drainage ditch so for the body to probably lay like horizontally across in is 10 feet um that just seems huge though i'm trying to think about it and it it does seem pretty pretty big yeah the ditch itself ran parallel to route 322 and i don't know if that holds any type of significance Uh, But it was definitely a detail that kind of stood out when I was doing research on this. So if you know anything about Route 322, let us know. Our next detail is Kim Raffo was the first victim who was found by the women walking. So she was the one that the women came across. So even with them all being in the same area, police searched near Kim's remains to discover the other three victims. So like we said earlier, not all of the victims were found, like just... by these women all at once they only saw kim's body and that's when they alerted police and then police came and investigated the area and found the other three victims and honestly good on them like they got on it and then they found the other one so yeah yeah. and i'm sure they went there not knowing that they were gonna come across more than one victim right being a cop, like you get that call from dispatch. Yeah. Oh, we got a. I don't know the codes or anything, but right. like we got a you know, XYZ yeah. right here. So they go and find it, and then you search around to figure out that there are three other victims. And me, if I were working that scene, as soon as we came across the second victim or the third victim, I would have been like, okay, how many more are there? Yeah. I wouldn't think that there was just one more after right. that. I would think like. There's got to be way more. Like, I'm sure they were out there searching, even once they found all four of the victims. I'm sure they were still searching, like, you know, if there's more, we got to find them, pretty much. I just checking the perimeter. Yeah, and thank God there wasn't more, but that's still a lot. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they were all in the same area is very weird. Strangulation? Right. By one person. And then in the same area. Right. You dumping all the bodies in the same right. area. Right. It's just, it seems hard to do, you know? It does. Especially women that were on the streets. They're they're street smart. They're women that know how to protect themselves more than likely. So, I don't know. Just a little weird. Many police were present at the scene once they were called in. It was evening time when the investigation took place. So, you know, us talking about this, you would automatically probably think that, oh, wow, all of this took place in the daytime or broad daylight. No, they were searching in the dark. The area from which the bodies were recovered was searched east to the bridge and west for approximately one mile between Route 322 and the Atlantic City Expressway. So, from the sound of it, they searched a very broad area. Like, it was a pretty wide search, um, and I think, once again, great work on their part there. All the victims' families were contacted within a week's time of the discovery. There is no information on who these women were as people, what their goals were, or their hobbies, only the tragedy of their demise. Um, It's just so unfortunate, once again, and so sad to know, like... I don't know, to know this about these strangers, about these women, and not know anything else about them. To only know them for their death and not their life. When their death was only a sliver, not even a sliver, a grain of sand compared to everything else in their life or everything that they were as people. Um, So it's just weird to me to think about it like that, that, you know, we only know these women for their death. Yeah. 
and not for who they were when they were here. You know, what really matters. Like you said, it does, it, it's very sad that we only get to see them in this light because maybe they were good people. Maybe they were right. great people to an extent, but like this is how we get to see them. And it's unfortunately, not, yeah. yeah, it's unfortunate. Like that we're able to tell these stories because these women aren't here to tell them themselves. So. And outside of their families, like there's other people out here that do care and want to like let it be known. Yeah, that these women mattered and they were here and they were alive. And with that being said, though, 15 years later, this mystery still goes unanswered. So now we're going to give you some ways you can contact uh, the Atlantic County Prosecutor's Office and even Crime Stoppers. If you know anything or any information about this case, you can contact the Atlantic County Prosecutor's Office at 609-909-7800. Again, that's 609-909-7800 or Crime Stoppers at Crime Stoppers at 609-652-1234 or their 1-800 line, which is 1-800-658-TIPS and that is 8477. That's 1-800-658-TIPS or 8477. Man, honestly... I, I hate when we get cases like this. It's such a it's a heavy one because like there are these these are four victims, all women. One of them yeah. mother. One of them is a mother. There's a couple of young women, and they just didn't get to live their full lives. And all we know about them is how they died. It's it's very it's very heavy. Yeah, definitely. Um, it just makes me feel good to know that. We have the platform to, you know, learn about these victims and learn about these these cases and about these people who often get overlooked or forgotten. And we're able to share their story um, and as well as have an opinion on it and be able to get upset for these victims because I feel like we're lacking that, you know, not, not every case gets that. Not every victim gets the, the outpour of support and love. Like for example, the Gabby Petito case did not every case and not every victim gets that. Um, and I love that with our platform, we're able to cover and talk about lesser known cases. We're not here to just capitalize off of true crime or talk about only the cases that are trending and everybody knows and wants to hear about. No, we truly care about these these victims and these cases and about telling these stories to you guys um, and just getting that word out there because, I don't know, I just see so many true crime creators out there who only focus on, you know, your fucking Chris Watts or your, what's that bitch name? Or your Jody Aries, or you know, just all your your well known cases and your well known killers, um, just for the sake of it being trending or popular. I don't really care for that. I like that we get to tell real stories and you know, be the voice for people that don't get that voice because their case isn't trending on social media. So yeah, I just wanted to put that out there. And with that being said, we're going to first tell you how we can support before we get into our wind down and our kind words. Supporting this is honestly fairly easy, guys. Like, comment, share, subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. 
You should. Because our YouTube videos are lit and we're trying to get to 100 subscribers. 100? Come on, guys. We're at like 77, y'all. Just, you know, you subscribe. Have your cousin subscribe, your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad, your grandparents, and your best friends. We'll get there quick, mm -hmm. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know people be having more than one Gmail and shit. Mm -hmm. Y'all can subscribe mm -hmm. on your other email accounts. Mm -hmm. I know it. And for the other creators out there that be tuning in to Deeper Than Most, we support y'all and you can support us. But yeah, and follow us on our Instagram, follow us on our TikTok, as well as our Facebook group. Y'all already know the deal with that. <laughs> yeah. Make sure you're leaving some ratings. Make sure you're reviewing. Oh, man. Also, comments are very much appreciated. Yeah, so, love it all. Share your thoughts, please. Share your thoughts. We'd love to hear from you guys. That's our thing. Now we're going to get into our wind down. And this time around, we have three of them. The first one reads, do you think the Eastbound Strangler and the Long Island Serial Killer are the same person or people? I think it's a possibility. I don't want to say for sure, like, yeah, it's the same person. But like we kind of tapped into earlier, if it's the same person, they were probably just doing it to see what they can get away with. Um, but if it wasn't the same person, then... I mean, it's just not the same person. But my thing is, I just don't think... I don't know much about the Long Island serial killer. So I don't know anything about those cases. I can't speak on that. But for the Eastbound Strangler and these women that were all found in the same area. From the same location. From the same motel. In the same field of work. Knowing the same groups of people, I'm sure. Somehow, and, and there's no, I mean, probably they weren't killed all at the same time. But what if they were, or around the same time? How could one person strangle four women and, like, dispose of their bodies right. around the same time? So th these either had to be, like, individual killings, and then he was just throwing their body in the same area, and somehow nobody found these other bodies, like, around that time or it was more than one person and you know it happens kind of collectively because there's no way you got three other women standing here while you're strangling one and they just let it happen no yeah. not, that doesn't make sense so it would have had to have been one victim at a time or more than one suspect i don't think they're the same person but it's very odd how similar some some of the some of the, some of the details are. are yeah yeah but i don't think they're the same person or people also i find it interesting too thinking on this more if it is one person doing this and say they did kill each girl mm -hmm. you know individually and then took them to this dumping area or maybe they killed them in that area I'm not too sure but you know how police say um, serial killers or just killers in general always go back to the dumping site or the the murder site um, just because they like the feeling or, you know, they have memories so they're able to, like, you know, like, replay that what happened, basically. They just get a kick off of it, I guess. Um, but just thinking about that, if that were the case with this killer he either took them individually to this area like he kept going back and was adding to it 
Like, he wasn't just going back to admire it. He was literally, like, this was his spot to do this. To either take the women there, then kill them and dump them, or kill them elsewhere and then come and dump them. I'm going to go with the latter on that one. I think he definitely killed them elsewhere and then dumped them. Because the way that I'm thinking about this... Really, I think he killed them while he was there. He was probably like, you know, let's go somewhere secret or let me take you or show you this beautiful view of the city. And then he takes them and they probably see the body and start freaking out. He probably wants to see that reaction, maybe. And then that's when he gets them. And like... That could be the case. But I get what you're saying, too, with them being killed in a different location and taken because of the shoes and socks. Why would they just have their shoes and socks off? Unless he kept them. Because what if what you're saying happened before, like, before they got to that point, and then he just offed them, and then mm-hmm. So, say he does take them. Oh, let's go see this or that, right? Yeah. Say he does take them, and then, boom, you know, kills them at his little opportune time, and then decides to, like, dump them after. It's just... It's just weird. Yeah, but my whole thing is the socks and the shoes. Mm-hmm. So, what you're saying makes sense with it being them being killed in a different location and then brought there to be dumped because like we had the whole conversation earlier what really is sticking in my head is these shoes and socks you're either taking your clothes off or you're putting them on right. you're not just going to be doing that out in a field like in a da- or a drainage sewer in the middle of nowhere behind a hotel like a motel right. that's just a little weird so what if they were in a room and that's where it happened and then it's close by. He's probably done this before. Like, he'll, he'll meet them. especially. After well, if he's the Long Island serial killer, then yeah, he did. Especially, especially after, like, maybe doing it that first time. It was like, okay, maybe I can get, get away with this again. Let me try it again. Because he probably went back and saw that the body was still there. Nobody found it. And so he probably felt comfortable enough to kill another woman and take her body there. Yeah. I do think that they could be the same person or they might not be. The Eastbound Strangler and the Long Island Serial Killer. Do you think the murder of these four women was possible for one suspect to carry out? We kind of covered this as well. If there were individual killings, yes. But say two of the women were killed at the same time, I don't, I just don't see a strangulation being done by one person where there's more than one victim around. It just doesn't make sense. The first one that takes too long. Exactly. And like while that's happening, the there's a whole nother victim standing there. What she just standing in line waiting for you to get her next? Like that just makes no sense. Like I said, it just takes too long. Um I definitely think it could have been one person if these were done individually, but two, there's gonna be a fight. Like one of those other victims is gonna be attacking the killer. Mm-hmm. And hey, maybe they did. Maybe it did happen like that and then he turned on her and got her, but I don't know. It just doesn't seem as likely. A third and final one down is, do you think this case can ever be solved? I'll let you answer that first. I think they could do it. If they re-examine the evidence once again and maybe come across some different things, I, I think that they could do it. Yeah. I think it can definitely be solved because they have DNA. Right. And... I mean, if you've got DNA, you're good. Like, in today's day and age, just because of 23andMe, and there's so many people's DNA entered into the databases that it'd be hard for them to never come across a match or to at least come across a match of a relative of the suspect. So they've got the DNA. It's just a matter of what 
and when are they going to do something with this DNA? Um, but yeah, I think there's a high chance that this could get solved. And when it does, I'm sure there's going to be a documentary about it. And with that being said, now we can get into our kind words. It's honestly my favorite part of the whole show. Definitely. Always. My kind words are be easy on yourself. You know, a lot of times we're just so hard on ourselves and we're so judgmental towards ourselves and we can be very negative towards ourselves and that negativity can be damaging. Um, I think we are our biggest critiques and that's not even something I think that's definitely a fact. <laughs> we critique ourselves the most. Um, so whatever you're doing, whatever you're working towards, whatever you're striving after, or whatever you're working towards and whatever you're striving for, just keep doing that and just know that you're doing the best that you can with the circumstances that you're given. Um, don't be so hard on yourself because everybody else is already doing that. Like, you need somebody on your side. And if anybody, it should be you. Exactly. So. Exactly. I would say being overprepared is always a better option. Because, I mean, listen, yeah. man, let's be real. We, everybody procrastinates. Everybody does it. And sometimes you don't plan things out accordingly. And things go bad. And even when you do, things still go bad. But it's better to be overprepared than underprepared. Always. That's a good one. This is episode 70, y'all. So you know what last week's episode was? Or, sorry, we skipped a week. Because we had a very busy work, work week. Um, and just a lot of things going on. But if you haven't caught our last episode, it was episode 69, and we were talking about sex, baby, as well as our review on the movie, Nope, Jordan Peele's new movie, yes, you guessed it, and last but not least, oh, actually a couple other things, our Q&A that you guys submitted questions for, and last but not least, our own personal alien UFO sighting encounter situation experience whatever you want to call it we had one of those and we talked about it on the show so yeah check out episode 69 it was a great one and if you aren't watching or if you aren't listening obviously you're missing out that was a pretty juicy story for one that review was great that was just episode 69 but this has been episode 70 which means you have 69 other episodes to check out including our short stuff bonuses so what the hell are you doing? Tell your mom, tell your neighbor, tell your mom's dog. I don't care. Just tell someone. And I've been your host, DJ. I've been your host, Sav. This has been another awesome episode of Deeper, Deeper Than, Than Most. Most.